We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to continue in, in our series on the righteousness of God and uh, what the righteousness of God is and how it pertains to us um, and just who God is, what His original plan was with us. Uh, last Sunday I've said it <clears throat> this way, if you take the people in, uh, that was in Egypt, the, the slaves, the Hebrew slaves that was in Egypt, when they were led out by God, you know, I don't think they really understood what was going on. And it would have been difficult for them to understand what was going on. Because here was a pharaoh that was a king over them, that was called a god. They, they, he believed that he was a god. They worshipped him as a god. And he gave them a lot of rules and regulations. And um, they had to work for him. They were his slaves. They had to build his kingdom for him. They had to establish his kingdom for him. And um, he would give them a, a place to stay and some food, uh, you know, to basically just live. And they were uh, his slaves. And then another king comes, or another god, which calls himself the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he comes and... Um, conquers the God or the king they are under and led them out. Uh, but the way they were thinking was all inside the parameters of slavery. Uh, the way they would uh, reason about righteousness, the way they would reason about uh, reason concerning their relationship with God was all inside the parameters of uh, a God that they need to serve. They never saw God as a father that came and set his children free. Okay? There's a big difference if another king comes and takes over the country. You know, if, if, we, uh, if, if a new president comes and takes over the country and we would uh, see him as a good president, you know, all that it would be is we would just have a relationship with a good president now. But if your father becomes the president, it's something completely different. In the very same way, when God came and led Israel out, He said to Moses, even before anything started, He said, Israel is my firstborn, is my son. And I want my son to be in a love relationship with me, and I want my son to be led out, so go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, my son. So the way God related to uh, slaves was that these slaves are his children. And that is how we need to understand, and that is what I believe the platform need to be from where we reason when we talk about redemption. Uh, what God came and said to, uh, to, the, to the slaves was, listen, I'm going to lead you out and I'm, I'm giving you a promised land. So from slave they're going to go to landowner, which is very difficult for them to understand. They, even in the desert, they said to Moses, when God wanted to speak and talk to them, they said to Moses, you tell God what we must do, and we will just do it. Where God wasn't interested in giving people commandments and telling them what to do, that they would be servants or slaves like they've been to the Pharaoh but where they will be sons, where he, will, where he would in his conversation reveal what he revealed to Moses. 
You know, when Moses went up to the mountain, what did, what did Moses see? He saw a fire, he saw all these things, and then God said, Moses, let me reveal my name to you. I am, mercy, I am merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I will by no means pass by any guilty one. I will give my mercy um, into the generations. I'll be good to people. That is what God wanted to communicate with the people on the ground. But they didn't want to hear that. They wanted commandments. And instead of seeing God as loving, caring, merciful, and gracious, uh, they were presented with ten commandments, for that is what they want. So we can see the slave mentality still inside the, um, inside the slaves, although they are not in Egypt anymore. They already led out. And if you read Corinthians, the Bible says that the whole thing with the exodus out of uh, Egypt, uh, the promised land, the whole desert thing, all of that was written for our exhortation. So it was written as an example unto us. And Paul comes and he uses that, and he talks to the people in Corinth using, using this exodus as an example of what we are in today. So, what we can conclude from that and what we can see uh, in, in the church in, uh, in, in general is that righteousness would still be defined as how have you served God? Where God would define righteousness not as um, have you obeyed ten commandments, but the way God would define righteousness is basically would you allow me to share who and what I am with you? Where the slave's definition of righteousness is, have I obeyed the Ten Commandments? Or, like I said last Sunday, when they were in Egypt, the way they thought they were righteous is, did I do what Pharaoh say? Did I make my hundred bricks? Did I bring the ten buckets of mud that I was supposed to bring, and the righteousness would all be determined on what you've done for the Pharaoh. And then now, they, they're free from the Pharaoh, but the, their definition of righteousness, their definition of, of relationship with God is still based on, tell me what I must do, and then I will do it. And I will serve God that way, and by doing that, obviously, the king must care for me. Well, that is not God's definition. That is not what God wanted. What God wants is a love relationship wherein He can influence your belief and your heart and get all the residues of slavery out of you so that your heart can receive what He has promised you. That you are a king that will have your own land where you will be in the image and in the likeness of God, for God is a possessor of the heavens and the earth. And He's now going to give you your own land. And in that desert time, what He was wanting to do there was come into a love relationship with the people where He can show them, I'm merciful, I'm kind, I'm good, I'm, uh, uh, I'm long-suffering, I am everything but what your view of who God is, is. I'm everything but that. And he wanted them to know that. Because with that heart, that is the only heart that will really receive a promise. 
Because you would know, even today, if the president of the country promises you something, you can't believe him. <laughs> you can't believe him. You, it, and I tell you, it doesn't matter what the country is. It can be America, it can be Germany, it can be France. If they promise something, you know that's what you're not going to get. And you know that you will have to obey a lot of things, and if you don't do it, this president or this king or this police force will punish you. Even if they don't keep their commandment. And here was people that came out of slavery, they went into the desert, and God by promise, promised them, a country of their own. And God took it upon Him and on Him alone to bring them into that country. The only thing that was standing in the way was what they believed. If they could believe it, then they would be able to enter into what God has already decided to give them. That land was already theirs. But their heart needed to believe it. God didn't say, well, if you don't believe me, I will not take you in. No. Their heart said, if I cannot believe this God, I cannot follow Him. For He wanted to take them into the country, but every time they turn away, we can't. Even at the end, just before they went in, they are giants. We cannot take it. They cannot believe that God can give them all of that for free, that they can be kings and rulers on account of God's promise. Now, if we define righteousness in this whole scenario, we would see the righteousness of God defined as God giving land to slaves. God giving land to people that are defined as slaves, not good, not good enough to be landowners in Egypt. That would be equivalent to looking at people today that we would say are sinners, that don't possess righteousness, that are just living a life that's not good, that are um, sinners. And God would come and justify the sinner with eternal life. That is what it would be like. It would be like, this person doesn't qualify. He cannot have it. And no crayons, if we must use the, the politics in South Africa, no crayons, what is noem rechtstellende actie. In God come and I say, I see these people, my people, has been taken into slavery by Satan. My people has been taken into slavery by sin and death. And I'm coming now with affirmative action. And I'm going to a little Because this is not what they deserve. This is not who they are. They've never been designed to be slaves. And then Pharaoh can say, but these people don't deserve to have a big house or a palace. They cannot even maintain a small little house. And God says, I don't care. I want to give them their own land. And we see the righteousness of God revealed. And God sees people that are bound in sin, bound as, in, as slaves, he still sees them as the God kind, and he doesn't lose perspective on who and what they are. And we see his righteousness, 
because it would be unrighteous to treat the God kind that's been taken into slavery as if they are slaves. That would be an unrighteous judge. If a judge is not righteous, he will, he will um, give a rich person preference above the poor. Because he would say, I define this person based on his income. Or if he's rich, then if he's done something bad, we can just overlook it. But the poor guy, he suffers the most. That's an unrighteous judge. But the righteousness of God is revealed herein that he saw the people that were called slaves, that were in bondage, his sons. And then he said, I will justify them. And I will bring them into what belongs to them. And the only thing a God needs in a case like that, the only thing any leader needs in a case like that, is for the people to believe Him. If the people don't believe Him, doesn't matter what His motive is, doesn't matter what He's already got for them, they will not be able to follow Him into what He's got for them. We see that in normal life. In normal politics we can see that. A guy can have the, the best ideology concerning politics and freedom for people, but if somebody doesn't believe him and follow him, they can never enter into it. In the very same way with God. So um, when we take this and we're going uh, we, to now move to um, the original gospel plan and what God had for man. Now, let us just look at God. Who is God and what is God? Now, I've stretched it over years here that God is a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not just a God that sits in heaven that's distant and cold. He's a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that He wanted man to be a partaker of that family. Something else that I want to add into that is that this God possesses an ability that no one else possesses. And it is found in 1 Timothy 6 verse 16. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read from verse 12. He says to Timothy, he says, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto you are also called. So what does he say to Timothy here? He says, fight the good fight of faith. In other words, believe God. Stay in the persuasion that God has. And then what does he say? He says, in that way, lay hold of eternal life. Whereunto you are also called. So what does he say here? He says, Timothy, you have been called unto eternal life. That's what God promised you. So continue to believe. Believe that God will give you eternal life. He says, unto whom you are, uh, uh, whereunto you are also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give you charge in the sight of God who quickens or makes alive all things, all things, and Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good conf uh, confession. So he says here, Timothy, continue in this persuasion that you have. 
What is the persuasion? That you have been called unto eternal life. That's what you've been called unto. He says, and you've confessed this confession that you've been called unto this life and that you believe that you will have eternal life. You've, you, you've confessed that before many witnesses. And then he says, I give you charge in the sight of God who quickens all things. Quickens mean that makes alive. So here he says, we are dealing with a God that wants to give you life. An eternal life. Which, um, it says, that you keep His commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen, nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Now what is he saying here? He says, there is only one being that possesses immortality or eternal life. Only one. His name is Jesus, which is also God. So here is a being, the only being in existence, including angels, including everybody. He is the only that possesses immortality or eternal life. The rest has got the ability to die. But He has got the ability to live forever, and He is the only one that has this. But, thank God, He's not a stingy being. He wants to share eternal life with beings, with others. And He wants to make, He, he comes and He gives life, and then once He's given life, this life that is given to a man, to Adam and Eve, can be preserved eternally. And it can, uh, uh, the life that God has given to Adam and Eve, if they want life, if they can believe in that life, if they can believe in God, they will be partakers of God to the point that they will also possess the same life as what God possesses. And that is the promise that God made with man. Now, what I'm about to say, I don't think it has been said in many places, but I want you to understand this. Because if you start to understand this, the Bible will make so much more sense. God was in heaven. Imagine in the beginning, even before there were angels, because angels were, are, are created beings. Just the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There they are, in heaven. They are the only undying beings there is. They possess this quality which is called eternal life. This eternal life manifests in a certain way. The way that life manifests is in things like love and kindness and peace and joy and sharing and all those kind of things. That's how this kind of a life manifests if you put it in normal terms. And in this life, in this love they have, they say, let us create a being that is exactly like us. In other words, this being must be alive, he must have a mind, a will, and emotions, he must be able to think and reason, but we also promise him the life we have, which means eternal life. That he doesn't possess the ability to die. When you look at Adam, 
Adam had the ability to die. And he did. But God wants to give man the ability to never die. To, 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 to have life and immortality. Meaning that the life Jesus has today, where he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is a human being that can never die, neither can he ever sin. He has conquered sin and he has conquered death. So God comes, He makes a man, He gives that man the freedom of choice to say, if you eat of me, if you believe upon me, who I am will uh, uh, um, saturate your physical body, your mind and your emotions, and I will manifest eternal life in you. And then you will share in my life eternally. You will not have the ability to die. You will not have the ability to sin. You will have none of that. You will have a body that is above that, that can give full expression to the fullness of God. That's what he said to man. And we're going to look at a verse. We're going to go through some verses today because I know we need to lay, lay some foundation. But God, actually, what God did was, he said, the only way I can make something in my image and in my likeness fully is this way. The only way I can get people to have my life is this way. This being has to be eternal. To be eternal means you don't have a beginning and you don't have an end. And it would be impossible to have any other being like that because everybody is created. Unless you can take that dust or that being and put it inside God then all of a sudden, the reputation of God will now be written behind this. And that dust will be a co-sharer of the very life of God. And that's what God has planned for us. People, can you see the magnitude of God's plan with man? He said, I am going to take a being and I'm going to give him, I'm, I'm going to give him freedom of choice. And that is the whole thing why Adam wasn't from the beginning created into eternal life. Because man had to have the freedom of choice. Because in the Trinity we find a Father, a Son and a Holy Spirit who by free will want to be where they are. And we are made in the very same image, in the very same likeness. And we have a free will. We've got the ability to believe. And when we can believe and trust and say, the life He possesses, He gives unto me. I don't have to work up life by my own works. I don't have to work up righteousness. He will make, justify me with His eternal life. When we can believe that, we find that we are now co-sharing in this love relationship in the Trinity and we are now a partaker of that eternal life. Amen. Now, when we read Titus, Titus 1 verse 2, listen to this, Paul, Titus 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now let me read it again. Paul says, I am the servant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth 
which is after godliness. So he says, I'm basically in this gospel, I'm in the faith, in the hope of eternal life. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm not having eternal life. Because how can you hope for something you have? He says, I am hoping to have eternal life. And then he says here, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So what did God promise before the world began? That we will have eternal life. Now let us define eternal life. Eternal life is God's quality of life, number one. Secondly, eternal life, we've made it just a spiritual thing, wherein we've only connected it to the human spirit. But we can clearly see that the Apostle Paul here does not talk about eternal life just as a human spirit. He's talking about eternal life here as a redeemed or a saved human body. And there is only one that possesses that today, and that is Jesus Christ. He's got an undying human body that is above sin, that is above death. And God says, I promise man that I, before the world began, this is what He promised. So when did He promise this? In the Trinity. He already promised, I'm going to make a being that possesses my life and it will be in this quality of life eternally. And Adam and Eve didn't believe Him. Nobody believed Him. But Jesus believed when God became flesh and He incarnated sinful flesh that Jesus believed the Father. He believed that God could take a human body, conquer sin, conquer death, and give that body eternal life. And we can now see that God does possess the ability to take a human being, even after he has died, to raise his physical body from the grave, and to put that body at the right hand of the Father, to possess the same life as God. And that is God's promise unto each one of us. Glory to God. The way Jesus was raised up into that life, the Bible says, is by the Holy Spirit. So what, he's done, what, what He did is this. He said, the Spirit of holiness can take, if the Holy Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, which we say God is our Father, which I will explain what that actually means, when we receive the Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now, you know, you can receive many spirits. You can receive the Spirit whereby you cry, Master. You can receive a Spirit whereby you cry, I'm a slave. But if you can have the Spirit, whereby you can say, from the depth of my being, I look at God and I say, my Abba my father, my origin. If I can say that, that spirit that's in me, by which I can say that, the spirit that says a human being, you know when Jesus went to the Father, we saw a human being now in the equality of God, a human possessing immortality. So now we see a human in equality with God. We see the Son of God is now the Son of Man, or the Son of Man became the Son of God. We see that God is now, or human flesh has inherited eternal life. 
When we can see that, and we see that we are humans as well, and we can say, but if that human, Jesus, is there, it speaks about me, it talks about me, and therefore God is my Abba. When that Spirit enters me, that very same Spirit, whereby you cry, Abba, Father, brings forth the first fruits of the sons of God into our lives, which is love and joy and peace and kindness, temperance, faithfulness, sacrificial love and whatever, and that very same Spirit, according to Romans 8, shall quicken your mortal body. You see, if we talk about the... Um, let's talk about the adoption a little bit. And listen people, today maybe it might be, kan dalk a bykie hoorgraad werk wees, but it's okay. You know, I find that the moment I realize that the Lord, has, the Bible says sin dwells in the flesh. Okay? Sin in the flesh. Therefore, if we can start to understand that salvation is not just a spiritual thing to go to heaven one day, but salvation is that one day when Jesus returns, that we shall receive immortal bodies in the return of Christ. And even if we have not died, you know, meaning that I'm 50 years of age and here comes the Lord, that I will not need to die, but that my body will just be changed in the twinkling of an eye. But that that power unto the salvation of the human body wherein dwells sin, is so powerful that even if I'm dead 10,000 years, it can still raise me from the grave. We see that Jesus, if you go to His grave today, you find no bones there. Why? Because salvation is about, it's to be saved from physical death, so that we can possess immortality. And that we will not uh, return, in, enter into the second death, which I will speak, uh, speak about later on. I first need to get some sessions and, and, and explain this before I can even go there. So, here we see that God has come to give us life. Now, if sin dwells in the flesh, and I receive the Holy Spirit into this body, what will the Spirit immediately do? He will start to resist the natural thing in this body, which is called the fruit of the flesh. Because I don't live by the flesh now, my heart is now focused in on the Spirit, and now the Spirit of God starts to manifest who He is in me, and I find the first results of God in human flesh right now. I find fear leave me. I find the worry about what others think fall from me. I find, I, I, I find the anxiety about things starting to leave me. And this happens as I believe this. You know, I went to um, get my visa to go to England because next month I'm going to, to Europe. And um, as I was... You know, the whole thing is, if you apply for this visa, I don't know if you've applied for the visa for England. Man, it's a stack of paper like that. So all the bank statements and the this, and they want to know when your mom is born, when your dad's born, when the, everything. So okay, I've got all of that, and then, they, then I had to be at a certain place. But I first, at the first time, I had the address wrong. I was just going to the, 
to the uh, consulate, and the consulate is not the right place. You need to go to another place. So, <coughs> um, and then I was thinking, okay, if it's another place and I don't know exactly where it is and I don't make it, you know, in time, because, you know, they've got that appointment at a certain time, and if you're not there, then it's, you, know, you lose your money. You must now try again. So then I thought, well, and this is the fruit this message starts to bring to me because the Spirit is starting to, the eternal Spirit starting to indwell me. Then I think, well, then I don't go to Europe. Then I stay at home. Spend time with my family. That's it. And what about those that I, that I can't meet then? Well, then they must have that same Spirit in them and have peace. That's just the way it is. And whenever something becomes such a thing of anxiety that you feel, I must do it now, and if I don't do it now, what then? Then I just find that the Spirit of God is bringing me to a place where I feel then it's not worth doing. If it must take away my peace, if it must make me so anxious, because if this deal doesn't go through today, well, if, the, if we come with this thing, if this deal doesn't go through today, then I am dead. Then you're making that deal your God. Because God said, I'll give you life. Not that deal. So then if that thing is so, we must do it now, then we can't do it. I must print my book. If I don't print the book on money now, then, well, then I don't print the book. But I'm, I've got a peace inside me that is coming. God is giving a birth to that by the Spirit. And we see the first fruit. Why? Because the end of it all is, and this is a thing, sin, not to be a partaker of, this is what sin means, of who God is, dwells in the flesh. Meaning, if I don't live by the eternal Spirit of God, which gives me gives the flesh eternal life, and I want to have eternal life by cutting myself off from the Spirit and taking this body and copying life, meaning trying to live by love, trying to be good, trying to be all those things, and think that I'm going to have life by doing these things, I will find that I'm not a partaker of eternal life and that this flesh starts to manifest things like hatred, bitterness, outbursts of wrath, and all those kind of things. So God says it's not right that man who has been promised that they will have eternal life from before the world began are bound by sin, bound by, a slave, uh, bound by slavery to, to, to death. I want them free and that they can have a freedom of choice. And he came in Jesus Christ, took a man that took all the sin of all the world, put it on one man, and then that man with all the sin of all the world on top of him died and God took a man that had the fullness of all sin upon him and the fullness of all sin could not keep him in the grave and God says, I possess power over sin. I can raise a sinner from the dead. Amen. Now, we today, even if you have got certain things in your life that is sinful, what do we say now? We say, we have got a Father that has made us a promise, and that promise is eternal life. And I believe, my Father, when the Spirit of faith enters your heart, you find the very same Spirit that has conquered sin, conquered death, start to be the, 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 the fountain of life inside you, and you find the conquering of sin in you. Not by you trying not to sin, but by the birth of God's life inside you. 
Amen. Let us look at what the adoption is, and I think I must end off with that, and then I'll only be halfway through my message, but then we can finish it next, next week. Um, I felt some anxiety from you guys. <laughs> Let's go to, um, if I say we're just going to talk about adoption, it might take an hour, you know. Ephesians 1. I've preached on this many times, but let us just go through this again. It says, Blessed, verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. So how, what is done? He has chosen us in Him. Before the foundation of the world. That what? That we should be holy without blame before Him in love. And now he's explaining what holy without blame before Him in love is. Having predestinated us or predecided us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. So, what is He saying? He's saying, listen, God decided before time that we would be holy without blame before Him in love. That is what he, we are called unto. He has predestined us according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love. What does that mean? He has predestined us unto the adoption of children. So, being holy without blame before Him in love means to be adopted as a child. Now, that doesn't make sense. If we look at adoption the way we have westernized adoption, wherein we say, somebody's not my child and I'm now going to adopt him as my child. It doesn't really make sense. But what does the Jewish adoption mean? Let's go to uh, uh, Romans 8. Man, I thought it was in 15, but let me just find the right verse. It says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him that has subject, subject, subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole earth... Uh, the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, we, have the, we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Okay. So, what does it say here? It says, all of creation, all of creation is waiting for glorification, a new earth, where, wherein there is no death. And then it says here that we, 
It says here, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So what is the spirit we have received? We have received the spirit of adoption. What is this adoption? To witness the redemption of our bodies. So this is what God says. God has promised from before time that He will give to each one of us, He promises us, immortality. The ability to never die and forever have life on account of His Spirit. Okay? Then He says, He's promised that from before time. That He calls the adoption. To be adopted from the mortal into immortality. Which is called eternal life. In order to do that, you need to have the Spirit or the basic principle that brings forth life in God, you need to have that very same spirit inside you. And that is called the spirit of adoption. So it goes in Romans 8 and it says, if I am not living in the flesh, meaning I am worried about circumcision, obedience to laws whereby I will have life, but I am receiving the spirit of life by faith, meaning when I believe that God can justify the ungodly with eternal life because He promised it, and we can even see He has done it in Jesus. When I can believe that, I have received the spirit of faith. I've received the spirit of God. That Holy Spirit inside me that says I'm holy, set apart for that purpose, what does that spirit do? It cries and says, Abba, Father, it says, I shall be adopted unto this immortality by this Spirit. And what will that Spirit do? That Spirit that's inside you brings forth the first fruit of the Spirit, which is all the things that the world are fussing about all the time, which is, are you living holy enough? Are you living righteous enough? I don't care about living holy. I don't care about living righteous or any of those things. We have the Spirit of adoption that can even make this physical body live forever and the effects of that spirit because I believe God has conquered death and sin that will bring forth that life in me brings forth the first fruit. It is more easy for God to bring forth kindness in you than what it would be to take your body that's dead for 20,000 years and raise it from the grave. So, the fruit of the Spirit is not the big issue anymore. The fruit of the Spirit is a given. It's what God has promised you, man. The fruit of the Spirit is not God's command to man. God's command to you is not love. God's command to you is not you must be kind. God's promise to you is, I will bring you I will bring you into kindness. I will bring you into life. And I will even bring you into immortality. I am your Abba and I will adopt you unto me and all I am. If you can just believe it, that's it. So we see what the adoption is. The adoption means to be adopted into not just having life, I'm alive, but to have your life preserved, that's what the word saved also means. means to put in a safe or to make it safe that it cannot be lost. 
so that our life cannot go to waste. It's like he said to Adam, he said, you are taken from dust, you know, but you'll return to dust. Because you've, you, you took the life I gave you, and you didn't take that life and say, and connected it with immortality. You connected your life with ability, and that ability does not possess the, the, the power to bring forth immortality. Therefore, you return to dust, you'll die. People, I want us to know this and, and, and go home. This might sound strange to your ear, but don't think of yourself as, I am a spirit, I have a soul, and I live in a body. Think of yourself as, I am a human. And this human being consists out of a spirit, a soul, and a body. Think of yourself that way. And then your heart will allow salvation to actually enter your body. Wherein you will be saved from the power of the sin of the flesh. You know, we have come to, to a place where, and, and, and please hear me now, I don't want to bash sin, you know, or, or sins. I, I saw a guy preaching, um, putting a thing on homosexuality, wherein he's, he's basically he's, he's in, into grace message, and it's almost now a sin for a grace preacher to say that God can set you free from homosexuality. It's a sin to say, it's wrong to say, it is a shame to say that God can set you free from homosexuality. The message of grace is not the message of God accepting your death and His weakness, accepting His own weakness to bring forth life in you. That's not the message of grace. The message of grace is the message wherein God conquered everything that destroys people. Let us be friends with people that are gay. Let us love the people that are gay. But let us know that if they're not set free in this life, they can be set free in the next life. But they can be set free and they shall be set free. God has not. Being homosexual is not a fruit of the Spirit. That's it. And call me an anti-gay or a, whatever you want to call me, I don't care. I just know one thing, it's not a fruit of the Spirit, and I'm not going to settle for, because if that is a fruit of the Spirit, you know what else is going to be a fruit of the Spirit? Anger, bitterness, and all those kind of things, and I don't want to live with that. That is not the highest quality of life. And to sit with a God that promises me life, even if I don't see the promise fulfilled in 10 or 15 years, I want to have the hope. That He can bring me life, man. And that He loves me even while I'm in bondage. He's not going to reject me. He's going to love me. But I want to have a hope. Glory to God. I want to see that freedom. I want to, when I look at somebody, I want to love that person. When somebody comes to my house and he's going through a hard time, want to commit suicide, and he's sharing his story, I don't want to sit there and think, oh, well, I don't understand what you're going through, and, uh, well, I don't know why you want to kill yourself. You're really stupid. 
No, I don't want to think like that. I want to feel with Him. I want to have the greatest compassion with Him. I want to feel what God feels about that person. And my hope, the hope that I have in Christianity, is that the Spirit of God will bring forth the first fruit of God inside me because I'm not in a place where I'm trying to bring forth that fruit. I'm in a place where I believe God promised me that. And He's not judging me uh, uh, on the foundation of if it manifests or not, it is Him promising me that, and I believe that that is what He can bring forth in Bafti Brits. Amen. He can bring a fear-free life, peace, joy, and maybe we will not see immortality now manifest in us, and uh, we will not see immortality until Jesus returns. But we can be the recipients of of the first fruit of the Spirit. And I want to tell you, I believe that we can live a, such a wonderful life uh, of the fruit of the Spirit on account of understanding that salvation is not just about going to heaven, but salvation is about saving the human body. At the end of the day, Jesus is coming back to earth. And the earth shall be glorified, human body shall be glorified, and the earth and us shall be made immortal by the God that quickeneth all things. Hallelujah. And that gives me a hope today. <laughs> Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen and amen. Father, I want to thank you that we can have a message of absolute love towards all sinners. A message that says that God will justify affirmative action shall take place over the sinner. And this is the affirmative action. You will give them life. You'll justify them with immortality. You love all sinners. And thank you, Lord, that the hope we have, even when we have sin in our life, is that our Abba has promised us Freedom from what's killing us. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be afraid of a new life. We don't have to be afraid of your warm embrace, wherein you have decided before time that you have already promised us that we shall be adopted unto you, adopted as sons, wherein you show and prove we are your sons by making these physical bodies immortal. And therein we will see the manifestation of sons. And I thank you, Father, that even Jesus Christ in Romans 4, he was, he, he was, it was proved that he was the Son of God by the resurrection. When Jesus' Father, when he was raised, seated at your right hand, in immortal flesh, we could see for the first time, this is truly the Son of God, because He possesses the ability to never die. He is the Son of God. And we have got that Spirit, Father. And I want to thank You, my Abba. I want to thank You, my Father, for giving us this. Thank You, Lord, that You um, empower us to preach this message all over the world, that people can believe and have life and see the fruit of, of the Spirit inside them. Amen and amen.